This is episode 82, Helping Kids Navigate the Online World with Richard Collada. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher that codes. So as was stated up front in the title, <laughs> we are here with Richard Collada, the president of the International CEO. Society. CEO, sorry, CEO. <laughs> Even better, the- You, you upgraded me. It's, it's good. <laughs> Yep. CEO of the International Society of Technology Educators, and we are thrilled to have you here, Richard. Kelly has been reading your book. I've been reading your book, and we've been just so excited to have you on the show to talk about kids and the online world. Well, you've doubled my readership, so thank you for that, but, <laughs> but really, really glad to be here. This is always a fun show, so I'm glad to be part of it. Thank you. Thanks. So we're going to jump right in. We'll do a little bit longer bio with uh, Richard to, to introduce you to him after we get to the wins of the week, which is where we always like to start. So it's something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. And we're going to make Richard go first because it's really fun to do that to our guests. And uh, so Richard, go ahead. What's happened with you this week? Well, I mean, the obvious thing, I don't know if it's cheating to, to do this, but this is CS Ed Week, right? So like, the awesome this week is getting able to see really amazing things that that teachers are are doing in in classrooms all over to teach coding and give that experience. So that's awesome. But I, I realize it's cheating a little bit because that's not mine specifically. So I'll give another one uh, as well. So this just uh, yesterday, in fact, we opened registration for our ISTE Live event, which is the first time in it'll be almost three years by the time it happens that we will have it face to face, and it will be in New Orleans. We've had our team work working overnight, uh, getting everything ready. And so we're really excited to be able to welcome everybody back in New Orleans in June. Oh, those are two great, great ones. One, ISTE Live. We didn't get to go to ISTE because of COVID. Yeah, We were was... going to present and then it was, yeah, that got changed. So that was really sad. So I'm really excited that you guys are going back live. And then the second, CS Ed Week. I love CS Ed Week. I love watching a lot of my friends around the world, our friends around the world coding and a lot of the things that they're doing. I know ISL Luxembourg, give a shout out to them. They've been having a great CS Ed Week, doing a lot of fun activities. And it's always nice to see. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. My Twitter feed is full of students making stuff and having those big breakthrough and even the little breakthrough aha moments of like, wow, look at this great thing that I made and how cool it is. I think one of the things I saw this week was uh, a student looked like a high school student that had made a working Iron Man helmet with a built-in heads-up display on it. Nice. So I'm assuming it took him longer than the week to pull that off, but it was pretty cool to see. Yeah, we're a little bit spoiled here because we get CS Ed Week every single day of the year. <laughs> But anyways, John, you want to go first on your win? Sure, sure. So my win this week is is one that has been a fail for a long time, but Google Colab is back. So I had written about this a, a few months ago. Google Colab changed a bunch of their settings around age-based restrictions and broke uh, Colab for us. So Colab is a online Python notebook that you can use to write code and collaborate. It's like a Google Doc, but with Python code. And they broke it for us. We had some students who could access it, some students who couldn't, and it looks like that's all been resolved. It's now turned back on for our school. If you don't have it yet, go talk to your Google administrator and they can turn it back on for you. But we're excited to have that capability back for us as teachers. Yeah. Online editor. Can't wait. It's good to have and you can just share that code right away and we don't have to copy and paste code in to check it. <laughs> so can I cheat? Go I want to do sort of my it's been a continuous fail for the past three and a half years, and I feel like it it resulted in a win today. So a continuous fail for me, the people at Adafruit always love me. I always talked about them, but 
I've been failing miserably on the circuit playground and just really having a hard time getting used to it. I can do it. I can copy the code. I can get it going. But I've never been able to kind of teach a little bit of it. And today I spontaneously had the kids do a challenge and I was just like, okay. And I had nothing prepared, which could have been an ultimate failure. But I gave them a challenge of lighting up some specific colors that I found, like maroon and dark cyan and turquoise. And I was like, okay, simple program. Do a shake of the of this little microprocessor. And when you shake it, I want all the colors to light up and then shut off. And it was for candy, which was funny and not for points because I told them the points don't matter. And we did it. And it it was so great. It was such an epic win for me to have a successful 72-minute class of the kids just constantly trying to get it and not worried about passing or failing. And all the libraries worked. It was just beautiful. And Sean missed it. He walked out of class today and didn't get to see my epic win. (laughs) So it was good. I love that that the incentive was candy. Like, honestly, if we just paused on that and said, what if we replaced grades with candy? Like, we might have just phenomenal growth in our education uh, programs across the world. I I just want to put that out there. Thank you. We like to quote, what's his name? Uh, Drew Carey. Drew Carey, where the points don't matter. How much is it? How many points do you want? 5,000? 10,000? I, I mean, I have this dream that one one quarter or one class, I'll just make all the po- points multiplied by 100,000. So this assignment is worth 400,000 points for you. And as long as they're all scaled the same way, it'll work out the right way in the end. <laughs> but I just want to have that class to just show that the points themselves don't matter. It's the learning that matters. It's the the accomplishment. And the most important thing I give you is not the points. It's the feedback. It's the mm-hmm. advice on how to make your project a little bit better. I kind of envision a Mario coin going ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, Kelly, any any fails this week that you want to share? No, it's been the board. We, I'm trying to get the boards. I just sometimes, if I can't get a board loaded, the circuit playground, I just throw it. I'm like, this one doesn't work. And Sean's like, I'll fix it. <laughs> I'm like, it doesn't work. <laughs> Give me a new board that's ready, loaded. But yeah, those are just that constant failure, trying to uh, work under pressure with hardware we even had servos going today. So it was a very hard word, hardware day. So I didn't have any fails okay. as much. Well, Richard, we'll give you a, a couple more minutes to come up with yours. And, and mine's relatively fast. I have a Windows computer that we use in the classroom for doing virtual reality. And somehow I broke the installation of Windows on it and can't get it back. So I have it sitting over there waiting for me to reinstall Windows and figure out what I did wrong. And I know it's one of those things that will just give me, you know, maybe another few minutes of of time to get it started or maybe a few hours, but I'll get it eventually. Just right now it's sitting over there kind of mocking me silently. We want that back. Yeah. All right, Richard, over to you. You know, there's so many things to choose from. What do I, what do I pick? No, look, I will. So I had for, I, I used to travel all the time. We'd go and, and get to visit schools and partners that we were working with around the world. And then all of a sudden it all, all went away. And, you know, it's been a while since I really traveled. And so just this uh, last little bit, I've started traveling again and going back to start to visit some of our teams. Anyway, I went through, uh, you know, security check-in and I had like, water bottles in my bag and like belts that were going off and like shoes in the wrong places. And like, and I was like, 
what have I become? Like, I'm that guy that I, used to drive me crazy. Like, I can't even get through security anymore. And it's funny how, how quickly those muscles of, like, how to get on a plane just go away when you don't have to do it for two years. So that was my fail. And I, I got I to gotta work on that a little bit. <laughs> and it's so easy to be too hard on yourself, too, right? You're like, I know I'm better than this, right? Like, <laughs> no. And tell the guy, and the guy's like, everybody says that. I'm like, no, no, I'm really, I'm not the guy. And just get your shoes off, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, it's like uh, you know, baseball. If you haven't swung a baseball bat in two years, and you try to go to the batting cage and hit balls, you're going to miss, right? Like it, it's understandable, but it's also understandable that we all think that we're better travelers than we may be for, on a given day. I haven't been on an airplane in two years. Right? So, See? So I'm, I'm, I'm guaranteed to be a Before you go up. to the airport, you know. <laughs> okay, I'm going to uh, practice taking off yeah, yeah, shoes yeah. and belts. And yeah. I, I'm just seeing Kelly with like tape lines on the floor. Like here's your, like this this tape is the metal detector. We're going to go through that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mapping out my playground. Oh my goodness. Okay, should we get started on let's, this? Let's do it. Okay, well, you know, we're going to do a little bit of intro for you. I met you and I'll do my air quotes. You probably don't remember me because there was like 10,000 people, but at the Macy conference in I think 2020, Yeah, uh, I met you because I went running up and I was like, oh, you and Daniel Pink were like the highlight speakers at the, I mean, Elliot Macy was awesome too, but we had, it was such an amazing conference to go I think I remember, you remember me coming, I was like texting the whole time. I was like, this conference is amazing. There's hardly any teachers here. There's really, really smart people. And I was texting every five seconds and I got to meet you um, with all the other 10,000 people that were there. I don't remember how many people, but there was a lot of people. Big group. Yeah, yeah. That, was, that was a fun event. Yeah. And I'm a big time follower of ISTE. Um, working in an international school, that's kind of like our go-to for standards mm -hmm. for everything tech. And so ISTE has been a big part of my life from, I don't know, a long time ago. And you are just this innovative educational leader. You have so much experience. You worked in the White House, correct? And you've worked in a lot of adult settings. You've got Tons of expertise in educational policy, teacher prep, educational technology, innovation, and you're just a great leader in this whole plot for all of us out here in this tech world, trying to keep up with the times and, and help our students and our children just reach their potential with working online. So that's my summary of you. And also well, that is a very kind intro. You should just <laughs> intro me everywhere you go, but it's great and it was fun. And I do remember getting to, to meet you a couple of years ago. So it's nice that we can reconnect. Well, and also in addition to all of that, you're a published author. So we have your your book here, Digital for Good. Kelly, the full title is Helping Kids Learn to Thrive in Raising Kids oh, to Raising Thrive. Kids to Thrive in an Online World. Yeah. And I've been I've been thumbing through this and and you know, Kelly and I each have children and going through there's a lot of food for thought here, a lot of constructive ideas for how to raise children in these worlds that they're inhabiting simultaneously. So if you could kind of maybe give us a little bit of an introduction to this idea of the two different worlds that we're living in, because what we'd really like to do is talk about how as educators, we can help empower these kids to thrive in both of these settings. Oh, yeah, that's I, yeah, happy to. So, so look, the reason this came about is really from talking to parents and teachers and they're saying, look, we are uh, struggling 
to, to find the right balance in how we're using technology and how to prepare our kids to really you know, thrive is, is, the, is the word in these, in these two worlds. And, and we really do live in two worlds. We live in a physical world and we live in a virtual world. And of course we go back and forth between them a hundred times a day, but, but, but they're different and they have different, they require different skills. And we're, we're pretty good at teaching, you know, little humans to be good people in physical spaces. We can always do better, but we're pretty good. We have it down. We know to, we're not as good at teaching them at how to be effective humans in those virtual spaces. And the, the, this is the important thing to, to know is, you know, the, the virtual world that we are throwing our kids into now, it's not the digital world that we grew up in, right? It is a highly complex space. There are amazing opportunities to do good uh, things. There are lots of chances to, to get into trouble. There's a whole bunch in between. And they're complex skills. And the problem is, and this is what I heard from, from parents, is, is they said, look, we, we go out and we're trying to look at how to do this right. And all the books that we can find out there are say, you know, ban technology, bury your devices in the backyard. And, and they're like, that's that's just not what we're seeing. Like, I'm not going to ban my kid from you. Like, I see all the good that it provides. But I need some tips and I need some strategies for how to create a healthy digital culture in my home or in my classroom. And so after, and, and you know, I would say, well, surely somebody has written something about that. And I would look around and, and, and no, right? There really wasn't uh, a lot about that. So that's what led me to do it. And I have four kids of my own and we were struggling, my wife and I together, to figure out some of these things. And and, and again, didn't have that, that guidance. So the goal is to be a really practical guide super practical things that work very you know very well strategies to help create effective uh, digital culture at home and, and in school and and I hope that that can be and I've, I've heard from some you know people that have already read the book have said thank you for providing some ways to look at technology not as not as an enemy but as something that has the potential to be really powerful and really positive but also needs some some boundaries and some guidelines in order to do it well so that's the idea of the book I, I agree. I think that was what I took away from it as I was reading it. And what I really appreciated about it too, is this theme of kind of practical positivity, right? That it's not Pollyanna-ish where it's just every, the internet's amazing and let kids do whatever they want. Sure. It's really this idea that technology has so many good things and so many positive aspects and attributes. And yet we write as adults, all of our, all of our ideas, our directions, our guidance is all written from this negative perspective. Don't yes. do this. Don't do that. Turn this off. Don't do this. Be scared because the internet is full of dragons and bad people. And, mm -hmm. and this, this whole idea, I mean, honestly, an internet full of dragons is pretty cool. I think that sounds it. awesome, but okay. But, but it's always couched in this negative perspective. And what I really appreciate about the way you looked at this is that there are so many positive benefits mm -hmm. of the digital world you know, how do we make sure that kids can see that they can embrace it, they can get all the good out of that, while still being, you know, careful and safe and healthy yeah. in that world as they navigate it. And, and Sean, the interesting thing is that you actually create kids that are, are safer and more protected from the bad things by focusing on the good things. So it's not it's not that it's like a strategy of avoiding the bad, it's actually the, the more effective way to, to get a, away from the things that are, are not he healthy and effective. And, and I look, look, I get to visit schools a lot, and used to, more, you know, more now coming back out of, out of the pandemic. 
And one of the things that I often ask schools is I say, hey, can I see, do you have any sort of like guide for, you know, a policy or acceptable use agreement or something like that for, for using the network? And all the schools, oh, yes, of course we do. They're all proud to show it to me. And I say, cool, can I see it? And 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 it usually is a list of, of all the things not to do. And I was at a school, you know, recently, and they showed me a, a list of 35 don'ts, right? And honestly, if you were to pay me, I don't know that I could come up with 35 things to not do with technology. But anyway, they had, they had 35 things not to do. Zero dues, not a single invitation. And I was like, really? Like all these things not to do? And there isn't a single thing you want your students to do with it? Like maybe help use technology to support your learning, bring in new ideas to the class. I don't know, something, anything, be a good digital friend. Like, it, it, and so that is just such a backwards message. And what I say is, I'm like, is there any other part of your school community where you do this? Let's take your sports programs, right? Do you have a list? I mean, do you go out and teach all the ways to, to not hit a baseball, right? No, like at the end of the day, you can't practice not doing something. You have to practice doing the skill. Music is a great example. Any any area, right? I have a son who plays the piano very well. And so like you can't learn to play the piano by being told all of the notes not to play. The only way to play the piano is to practice over and over playing the, the, the right notes. And that's the same thing. Whenever there's a complex skill and being a, a member of the digital world is a complex skill, the only way you get to do that is by practicing doing it right, not being told what not to do. And so it's just a fundamental shift that we have to get on board with if we're going to have a chance at having kids that are really able to thrive in this world. Yeah, 100%. It, w- it reminds me of in a former school I was working at, we switched our entire digital citizenship right up to go through the lenses of, I think we we're looking at the time, the lenses of, of ISTE or the lenses of the standards, and we switched it to all dues. But I, I again, I was reading some digital citizenship stuff was don't hack. And I'm like, hack? kids like what do you mean hack and I was like what do you mean yes do hack be an ethical hacker I have a really good friend whose job is in uh, Switzerland and he's one of the top hackers his job is to go in and try to hack into your company to let you know that you have cyber insecurities and that he needs you to hire him to fix it so I I 100% agree don't try to do something why do try to do it but just try to do it for good the other thing I was going to point out too is that those acceptable use policies are often artifacts of situations that have arisen over the years. Right? <laughs> so it's like something something happened that we didn't want to have happen, and so now we're going to add another one of those don'ts to the to the list of things that kids can't do. Right. And I, and I remember this specific example. We were talking about you know some kids had figured out how to use VPNs to bypass the firewall restrictions and go play the video games online that they wanted to play, mm-hmm. and it was like well. Don't use VPNs, period. End of story. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa hold, on, hold on a second. A VPN is a really useful thing. Like it's a virtual private network that lets you connect securely to another network. I use a VPN almost every day to connect securely back to my home network without exposing the rest of my home network to the mm-hmm. internet. Mm-hmm. That's a really positive use case. And in addition to that, let's take a moment to appreciate the fact that kids figured out, I want to be able to play this game. How do I do that? I'm going to figure out that there is this thing called a VPN. Mm -hmm. I'm going to figure out how to set it up, get it working on my computer and make it work. Those are complex, elevated Mm -hmm. skills to be able to make that work. If we had figured out how to maybe redirect that a little bit or talk Mm -hmm. about like, what could you be using this for that would be really valuable and beneficial? Right. Like maybe there's some sort of content that's available in another country and legally you want to be able to access it, but you have to use a VPN. 
that might help broaden your knowledge of another yeah. culture, another country. That's a good use of a VPN. So I, I think when you start to peel this back, it's the policies are kind of a, an indicator of other conversations that have happened, other ways and attitudes that have been employed over the years. And That's it's right. a great way, almost like as a historical document to go back and look and see, here are all the things that maybe <laughs> here are the kids that hacked back it. and fix. Yeah. yeah. But, but look at how awesome that would be if the opposite were true. If you looked at all of the ways that you are signing that you should use technology, and it's a whole list of artifacts of over the years of really amazing things that kids have done to find ways to use technology. And that's what they were signing to do, right? right. To sign to be a good digital friend, to be somebody who uses technology to fact check, to, to you know use technology to engage more with their community and solve problems in their school. Like That's what I want on that list. That's what I want kids signing up for. Right. I will use cryptography to protect myself and my. Yes. Right. right. There you go. Right. <laughs> uh, so, Kelly, I think you had a you had a question for Richard also. Oh, my gosh. I have so okay. many questions. Oh. Well, I just want to I wanted to do the quote like I love this and I always like to put out the quotes. But the conscious of our technology is us like this whole ethics. I think I'll start with ethics right there, because that's one of the things that I felt was an easy way. And I'm going to kind of switch jump into the topics of. Okay. You're digital for good. It's meant for raising kids. It's meant for parents. But when I read it, I was like, oh, my gosh, how can I help the teachers who are not teaching computer science, who help them understand that this is their role to do in school? And one of the ones that I was easy to one of the things I was easy to get into with another teacher was this whole idea of ethics. What's what's this dystopian versus utopian society that we're dealing with with the technology and how can we talk about ethics? And I guess like my my thing is, you know, what ways have you seen that we can support our our kids and to become stronger citizens of this digital world? Have you seen this in other schools? And, and in other subjects, right? Yeah. So not just yeah. computer science in the technology classroom. Sure, sure, sure. Although before we move on to that, I will say that there is a section in the book where I talk <laughs> about the importance of teaching uh, computer science and, and, and coding and computational thinking to kids, regardless of what they, they want to do. Not just kids you want to go into tech fields, but kids that want to go into any sort of leadership in the future, like you need to understand some of the underlying pieces. So I, so yes, that that is a, an important piece. But, you know, what what you bring up here is and in the in the book, one of the things that I do is I try I have a whole series of questions. So at the end of every chapter, there's like 10 questions. My goal of the book was to try to start a new and better conversation. So it really is trying to tee up better conversations with with your students, with your kids, with your peers. And so a lot of the questions are questions that intentionally get at issues of of ethics and, and judgment. Right. So there are things like, you know, what what is your role? If you have inadvertently shared information that you then find out is not completely accurate, right? That's an interesting question. Just talk that through for a bit. I don't know that there's an exact right answer, but but let's deal with those 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 questions. Another uh, you know great one is is what is your role when you see somebody in a virtual space or witness them in a virtual space who is not being treated in a way that you feel comfortable with, right? What do you do? Because one of the things we have a lot of data that shows this is that a lot of kids witness, you know, the vast majority of kids witness some sort of you know bullying or or inappropriate behavior and do nothing about it. And it's not that they're bad kids. It's not. It's that they've never had the conversation about what am I supposed to do? We've never practiced it. It's again, back to practicing these skills. And so if you can talk about that in advance, then, then you're ready in those moments. And, and it turns out that it does not take a whole lot of intervention to turn around bullying in most cases in virtual spaces. Sometimes it's as simple as, hey, that's my friend. We don't talk about him like that here, right? As simple as, as that. 
And then there are some other questions that go even, even deeper. I, you know, at the end of the book, I talk about some challenges that we're going to have to face in the future. One of them is thinking about AI and the fact that most of our kids now are going to be working on teams in the future where not all members of their team are human. And so some of the questions that we need to be asking are, are there, are there decisions that we should ethically be turning over to a machine or not? One of the questions that I, I, I really like in the book, I hope everybody reads this part and talks about it, is in a world where artificial intelligence can do many uh, of the skills that humans used to be able to do better, what is the value of being human? What is the unique value add that we bring to this world? And I think there's lots of really powerful things that are uniquely human. But when I talk to kids about it now, it's it's hard. They have a hard time uh, distinguishing and knowing what is uniquely human and what is something that, you know, that we do that's just replaceable. And, and, and when you don't know that, you don't know how to double down and really focus on the things that we bring to the world that artificial intelligence never can. So those are just some really important questions that we should be starting to talk about as, as early as, you know, first grade, right? Like we need to start that in, and, and below. These are important conversations that we all have to have. You know, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because it also makes me think about, you know, a lot of students don't even know what things are AI and what are not, right? Like mm -hmm. being able to distinguish, you know, okay, face detection, you know, that's something that seems like it's a pretty, you know, pretty obvious use of AI, but because of the way that the internet works, the way that technology works, students have no idea. Is this really a, an AI, a machine learning program running on my phone or on my, on, in the cloud? Or is it a guy who's in Bangalore, who's just sitting there clicking through and clicking on faces all day yeah. long? Because there's been plenty of examples of, of companies that have employed low cost workers in other countries to be able to do complex tasks right now, because at that time it's cheaper than training a machine hmm. learning model. Yeah, I was just thinking while you guys were both talking. So two years ago, we took Sean at our school, we took a course in, in AI It was way over my head at the time, but it was cool to, to really take in what was being done. And I, I was lucky and Sean, we were all lucky to have this course to have a deeper understanding of what is artificial intelligence, machine learning. And we started having these conversations with students. I don't know if you've, I think you guys might've heard it, but the moral machine was at MIT or something. MIT came up with this whole idea and we were talking to students, well, about colors and lines. And well, if I see this as red and you see this as maroon, you know, how do we know what that color is? And then I brought up the moral machine. I was like, well, that's kind of what happens when we do self-driving cars or when we, we do an analysis of large amount of data with someone behind the the machine had coded this 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 algorithm and this is obviously a different type of machine learning it's the you uh, un, no it's supervised yep say i'm learning supervised machine learning where you know a, a person coded this and said okay if you see a dog in the road you're going to swerve to out of the way. If you see a cat, you're going to go forward. You know, dog, cat kind of thing. And the kids, I know, sorry. Such bias against cats I on know. this program. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it got into a great conversation because it, it all started from just the difference between seeing colors, red versus a maroon or a dark red. And it's something that I feel lucky about being opened to when I started teaching computer science. And I don't think many people have that opportunity to understand what's happening behind the AI. So you bring up a great point. 
Richard. That kind of leads us into another area that I wanted to talk about, and that's as we're building these skills of computer science, of AI, of machine learning, and then also, you know, building the foundation of digital citizenship and and appropriate behaviors in these different worlds. One of the things that you brought up in the book that I thought was really interesting was the digital use divide as well, mm. that it's not just the access to technology, it's the way in which it's being used. So if I have an internet connection, I can use that to just watch 17 hours of Netflix a day and get a few hours of sleep, or I can use that to create things. I can make things with the digital capabilities that I have. Can you describe that a little bit more? Because I think that's a really important point as we go into the future of the digital realm. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. That's a really important concept that I that I share. And we discovered this back when I was working for the US Department of Education. And we were doing a lot of work at the time to close what we were calling the, you know, the digital divide, which you generally hear it's it's people that are connected to the internet or broadband internet or whatever. And this is, of course, extremely important work, we have to do this to be part of an equitable digital system. But what we found when we looked at it is that there were really some a pretty stark difference that we we saw in this sort of other divide, which we called the digital use divide. And that was that you had uh, cases where you had kids, we were mostly looking at young people, but I think it could apply in other places as well. You had kids where there would be work done to make sure there was infrastructure devices in a school, but they were using the technology because the teachers weren't prepared, because the vision wasn't there. They were using it in ways that really just kind of digitized traditional practice, literally like scanning worksheets on, on a screen, doing what I call nexters, which are those, you know, uh, online courses where you hit next, 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 next through, and then maybe you answer a multiple choice question. And if you haven't slipped into a coma, by the time you're done, you supposedly get credit for having learned something, right? Which is which is garbage from a learning standpoint. You know, that's not how people, how people learn. So that was what we were seeing on one side, right? It, it was using technology to just shove content in a kid's face. And the least interesting thing you can do with technology is use it to push content out to a kid, right? That's that's just something we know. Now, on the other side of that divide, we saw technology being used in a very different way. It was being used as a tool in the hands of students to problem solve, to create, to collaborate, to, to design, right? Those are all of the types of things we're using. And, and maybe there was some content being presented, but it was only being presented enough to help them then be able to use, use this problem-solving tool to help figure out what they needed. It was, it was a tool to connect them to peers, to experts. That is a very different digital experience, completely different digital experience. And so what we call out, and I call it in the book, is that we have to be very careful about this digital use divide. Just plugging somebody in, if we're not thinking about how the technology technology is being used and providing the supports to use it in a really meaningful way, we actually have not made much progress. In fact, you might argue we've taken a step backwards. And so that's important to not conflate connectivity with closing what is, I think, the more important digital divide. Yeah, 100%. It's like it's the the tool is not being used in the best way for the job kind of thing. I was just highlight. I was looking through, just coming back to those conversation starters, a couple of questions that you post in the book kind of going along with this topic was, what are your favorite places to go online when you want to learn something new? I love that. Like, where can you learn about something new, ancient Egypt? Where have you gone? What have you shared? Can you find something different? Or what is something new that you've learned online recently? Just reemphasizing the fact that you have this powerful thing in your hands and instead of watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos about Minecraft, you know, this guy just playing the game. Well, after you've watched that, go build something. 
Can you can you code it? Can you go make something better than that person who's been spending all the times making those videos? Yeah, I, I, look, that such. Thank you for bringing. That's one of my favorite questions that I that I share in there is you know what's something new that you learned online recently, right? Or where do you go to find those? They're great, and those are the types of questions. Those are the types of conversations we need to be having more with 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 our kids, and we we need to do much more of it. By the way, they're tangentially related to that. One of the things that I did as I was looking at the book is as I was talking to parents and teachers, I I would say, you know, have you, do you ever recommend a, a book to your kids, right? And across the board, everyone said yes, right? We, of course, I, I always I want them to be good readers. I want to recommend books and, and especially in these transition years, right? Between the kind of young picture books into those early kind of early picture chapter books and then between those to like the kind of real full text uh, books, like those are real. And, and they'd tell me their whole strategies for recommending books and the websites they'd go and so I'd let them go for a little bit. And I'd say, okay, have you ever recommended an app to one of your kids? And in most cases, it was just sort of silent. Right, and I'd say how what how why how are we not do, how are we not doing that how are we we're so focused on you know being recognizing the importance of recommending books and I'm not suggesting not to do that that's great but but why are we not also taking that same care and attention to recommending tools and apps for our kids so so if we don't do that the only way they're discovering apps are from ads that they see or from somebody else that they happen to know in school that's recommending an app to them, that's not okay for my kids, whether they're my students or my own children, right? So we really need to be thoughtful, and it's a good question for parents. When was the last time you, you recommended an app to, to, to a kid? And if you haven't done it in a while, that's a good thing to start doing. And, and again, in the book, I provide some tips on how to, how to find good apps to do that. Yeah, and if you don't know any good apps, like that's a great opportunity for us to broaden our own horizons, right? So if I have to make a recommendation, yes. I have to go vet it. I have to make sure that it's a good one. You know, like my son got interested in chess because he was playing games with his grandfather. So I had to go find what's a good chess app for a six-year-old kid to learn yep. the fundamentals of chess. And there's this amazing chess game where you have to play as the chess characters exploring this world. And as you explore the world, you have to move in the same movement patterns as the, the pieces. So like mm -hmm. the pawns can only move forward and diagonally if there's another piece there. The queen can move in any direction she wants and the knight has to make that L-shaped move. And my son picked up the movements of chess so quickly because this one app that was recommended to me, I think by the, by the, one of the moderators on Python discord worked beautifully for teaching about chess. And yeah. I, I would have never thought about it yeah. if I hadn't had to make that recommendation. hundred percent. Well, I'll do a little plug. My, my suck, my Sunday time more when the kids crawl into bed, there's a lovely website. It's called this kid should see this. And I just get sucked into watching these really great videos of things of either learning how to make stuff, kids doing great things, learning how to cook online. My son got into, I don't know, making swords or I, I don't know how what he got into on a video, what he got into on a video. But he comes back to me two days ago with he had found a rock from school and he drilled a hole through it and he made his own archaic <laughs> acts and he had seen it on this video so those are the things that i i love to hear as well it's good your kids have graduated to the stone age That's oh amazing. my kids have graduated to the stone age yes where i've taken them out uh, as a computer science teacher i've taken them out of the tech age back to the stone age sorry we, we digress a little bit <laughs> um i want to jump in because this is something um dear to our hearts because it's very close to us but you had said something in the book about spyglass to improve the world around them and being so close to Parkland, it hit us really hard in our community because we have a lot of teachers and 
who either worked at Parkland, have known people at Parkland. And I was thinking about this. I was reading it in the book. And thank you for mentioning them. It's something very dear to us. But how these kids made such a political, vocal difference in the world by by using using technology. And it was something that, I, I mean, it had something in there that just sparked everyone, it, whether they agreed with gun bans or whatever. These kids had something to say and they used it in such a powerful way. Do you want to elaborate on that? Because that was a great, I, I can't use your words as, as well. Uh, no, no, no. Happy to. I mean, look, I had a chance not long after the Parkland events happened to talk with Diane Volk Rogers, who was the teacher and had worked with a number of these of these kids. And what was what was interesting is she said these were students long before any horrific event happened in their school had been prepared to use technology and social media to amplify their voice. And so what we saw was, was kids that then very quickly knew how to reshape a narrative that had been taken away from them. And, and that's something that is that really struck me, and it's why I write about it in, in the book, but it struck me because we said, and I used to be a teacher, right? And I, 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 I would always say, you know, your, your voice matters. And I thought about it, I was like, but it was kind of a lie, right? We'd say your voice matters, but you can't vote. And your voice matters, but you have no input into anything that we decide about how your education is going to be. And your voice matters, but, you know, maybe it's for something that you'll do someday down the road, right? It was very, oh, yeah, and your voice matters, but we're never going to give you examples of kids who have done amazing things in the world. They're always adults that you're learning about, right? Like, and so, so it just struck me and I thought, wow, technology, when, when used effectively, can really shift that so that a kid's voice really can matter. And so I outlined some examples of that. And there are some certainly of that, you know, what, what the, you know, the kids at Parkland did about saying, here's, here's issues that, that matter to us. But there are other things as well. I talk about a, a young kid who was frustrated because Jamba Juice was destroying the environment with the amount of styrofoam that they were pumping out every day. And so she started a petition to get Jamba Juice to switch to using paper, recyclable paper cups and got a whole bunch of people engaged and involved. And they did, right? They made, I mean, these are big changes for a, a young kid. And there's there's many others that, that I, I talk about in there. And so this idea of knowing, seeing technology as a tool to amplify your voice and impact, that's a critical step that we need to help kids realize. And, and when they can do that, they can have a, a, a really significant impact in the world around them. And they don't have to wait down the road to do that. They can make a difference now. And we have too many issues and too many problems to tell kids, yeah, you'll get your turn someday because we're doing a pretty good job now, aren't we? No, I don't, I don't think so, right? <laughs> we need their help and we need their help now in meaningful ways. And that's what technology um, allows. And, and it's really inspiring. Frankly, it helps me think about using my voice better in a digital world when I look at how, how kids are doing it. Well, and it's so easy to be cynical too, right? It's so easy to be cynical and say, oh, well, Jamba just, just did it because it was a great PR move for them, right? Mm -hmm. But put that aside for a moment. This is a student who made something happen. Mm -hmm. Jamba Juice, regardless of their motivation, still did it. Yep. And they probably would not have if that student's voice That's right. hadn't been heard by someone at Jamba Juice who said, you know what? we should make a change for whatever reason they made, yep. right? So I think that's that's the part that as we are helping to prepare our students and helping to 
talk to them and help them make changes. I think they don't even realize what kind of reach their voice has. Yes. You know, if they want to start a podcast, it could be heard by people around the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, more so than than I think we ever thought in our generation. I remember when I was a kid and I was in a, you know, a gifted program for half a day, one day a week. And one of the things that, that teacher did was help connect us with a classroom in like Minnesota. So he, there I am growing up in, in Alaska, way out, you know, way out North. We're connected with another classroom in Minnesota and we're sharing weather data on the same day over something called the internet. And it was like, it was even pre World Wide Web. It was, I think we were using like Gopher or something Gopher, like that yep. to share data, right? And it was, it was amazing to me that we could be connected with someone that far away. Mm-hmm. And we had to go through so many hoops to make that happen. You know, like we had to upload it. We had to connect with the modem and all of these things that, that would happen. And yet our students have that reach in their pockets, right? They yeah. have that ability to amplify their voice and reach people that, you know, I, I think to the point of, of doing good with it, there are 7 billion people in the world. And that mm-hmm. means that there are people that share your ideas. There are people that have same interests as you. And there are also people who can help expand your mind with different perspectives yeah. when they go global. Right? Yes. And I want to I highlight something here that's important, which is, and in the book, I talk about sort of macro level impact and micro level impact. And both are important. And so sometimes there are opportunities to do things like get Jamba Juice to be more eco-friendly or help say, no, here, let's tell you what we really feel about protecting kids in schools from, from gun violence, right? Those are sort of macro level things. But I also talk about the importance of micro level advocacy. And, and these are things about like using your voice, a kid using their voice to help improve their local school community, right? Something as simple as, as making posts and sharing highlights that recognize talents of other kids in their school, right? A post saying, hey, you did something really awesome and I want to shout you out for it. You look really great today and I want to call you out for that or whatever whatever it is, right? And so those small micro level movements, right? Actions can have a deep impact, a profound impact on somebody who's having a rough day and feeling like the world's against them. And all of a sudden gets a social media post that that shouts them out for having done something really awesome, right? And so though, and, and it's that balance between those two, I think that's really powerful. And so you, yeah, there are chances that you can really change the world. And you know what? You can make deep impact in, in, a, in your community, even if you're not changing the world at, at a large scale every single moment of your life. And that's important to recognize too. Yeah, you just reminded me yesterday I had such a huge smile on my face from the female lead on LinkedIn, three talking to a video camera about you're having a bad day, girl, get, get up, get up, you're, you're, you're powerful. And I, I got done watching this. I told Sean, I was like, you have to watch this. And he looked at me at first and then he started watching. He's like, oh my God, that's so good. But we, you know, when kids, and I'm going to switch a little bit to computer science, kids come in and they say, well, I can only code, you know, so many things. How am I supposed to do anything? And then I had a student come up with like this little smile app and it was like, what are you feeling today? Are you feeling happy? Are you feeling sad? And then if they said sad, they put an emoji of a person, I mean, emoji of a happy face. And then afterwards they're like, now do you feel happier? And I was like, that small little thing, that little piece of code that you thought you couldn't you know, make something powerful was just that thing. It was powerful. And we have the ability, whether we know a lot of code or a little bit of code to 
send out positive messages. And I like yeah. that micro level stuff. And if you have follow me on LinkedIn, you have to check out this video from the female lead. I love it. I, I, I watch it <laughs> a couple of times already. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to save it to my phone too. Cause it just, I think that's where, to your point, the, the nice thing, I think you made this point a few times in the book is that in the digital world, physical proximity doesn't matter. Right. And, and in fact, the only thing that really separates us around the globe anymore in the digital world is time zones and who's awake and who's asleep at any given yep. time. And so, you know, these three women that did the the you're having a bad day video, you know, it's something that that feels micro, right? Like it feels like they're talking to you and you're having the bad day and they're going to cheer you up specifically. And and yet maybe they sent that they can send that to a friend and it cheers up their day or they send it to 10 people and cheers up their day. It's it's something that I think if kids get that sense of I'm making a difference for one person and then they realize the power of being able to scale that into that macro level, it becomes even more powerful and their and their voices and their ideas and their creativity and their emotional literacy and competency, you know, is is brought to bear against a lot of our problems that we have in the world. I'll just do a quote while we all pause and ponder all that deepness. But you you said, teach them to become contributing digital citizens who positively shape the virtual world and activities within it. And I think that's that was huge, not only changing the virtual, but putting the activities in it. And I know a lot of the times in advisory or homeroom classes, we go, oh, you're going to be a positive digital footprint or you're going to do this. But yet kids try to go on to LinkedIn or they try to go into Twitter and it's blocked. <laughs> so circling back to the first conversation of getting kids into a place where they can have positive voice, where they can make these activities, where they can do their policing or learn how to identify negative incidences or bad websites or bad people and figure out how to shape it and make it better. Yeah. A lot of food thoughts. Yeah, and to be to be comfortable with the skill of learning how to curate and moderate in a virtual world, right? And one of the things that I say is that in order to be effective leader in in the future, you will have to have a skill of knowing how to curate and and moderate virtual spaces. So I think we need to do a lot more practicing of that. Having kids learn to moderate communities, whether they're community digital communities within a school, whether it's you know Wikipedia, whether it's there's a variety of, of those places. But this idea of of having that experience being a con content moderator, curator is really a critical skill for any future leader. And so getting that skill as a young person, whether that's participating in, you know, moderating a local community, whether it's doing something like being a moderator on, on Wikipedia, that is a key citizenship skill that we need effective members of our, of our, our digital society to have. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that could be practiced really easily is moderating your own discord server. I mean, many of our students have set up discord to communicate with their friends yeah. and adding that idea of if you set this up, you have to moderate it, right? It's like it followed you home. You have to take care of it. Mm -hmm. So we, we have opportunities all around us and it, it kind of reminds me of you know, one of the first questions I ask students, new students to computer science is why are we teaching you computer science? Right. And their answers usually fall into a fall into a few buckets. The first bucket is because you told me to. Right. Like, we don't have the luxury of choosing what we want to learn. We're often told what we're going to learn. Mm -hmm. And you've told us we're going to learn, learn computer science. But the second most common answer they give is, you know, in the future, computers are going to be really important. <laughs> and I say, guys, and girls, we're going to take a time out here. Computers are really important now. 
And I don't want to teach you things that you're going to forget about and then try to remember 10 years from now. I want to teach you things that you can use today, skills that you can use today, ideas that you can use today. And I think that moderation is one of those skills, right? Being able to moderate your online communities, being able to create things now that make your life better or make your friends' lives better. And, and so the, I guess my question to you is, you know, those skills that, that's, kids can start to gain is ever too late to teach them is there anything that's like oh well you missed your shot you know you can't teach them those skills because they've are they've gotten too old it's a great question and i get i get that question a lot actually and it's not only about the skills sometimes i get it from from families and parents who say hey we didn't establish a healthy tech culture in our home is it too late to do it now and 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 i and i do i do talk about this in the book and there's a there's the the first part of the answer is it's never too late, right? It is absolutely never too late to start to both deepen skills that we have in terms of using technology for good, right? For, for improving our communities and our society. And it's never too late to set up to improve our, our technology culture in our homes, in our schools. Now, there's a reality that that gets harder to do and takes more effort and is a slower process if you start uh, later, right? If you're if you have you know kids at home who are 16 years old, by the time we're starting to talk about some of these you know norms and uh, for how we're gonna what type of technology culture we want to have in our home, there's going to be some tough habits to break. Not too late, but it's just going to be a heavier lift. Same with kids in school; it's going to be harder to help think about how to use technology to make an impact and to improve their future uh, happiness and learning if we have started too far down the road. So, so that's my my kind of uh, split answer, which is it is never too late, and the earlier you can, earlier you can start, the easier it is to build those good habits and not have to spend a lot of time breaking bad ones. But you say the key word is the habit. And I think that is something that needs to be highlighted for a lot of people. It is a habit. And like any habit of eating healthy or going to the gym or whatever, it takes it takes a lot of focus. It takes a lot of routine and it takes a lot of commitment. And so that's one of the things that I hear sometimes from parents as well is like, I can't get my son to to get off of YouTube. I'm like, well, take the device away and have a conversation about what to do. I mean, there is a lot of habit to be built and it's yeah. something important to talk about. So, so let me actually, let's, let's pull that one apart a second because that's a good, a really good example that I hear a lot. And so, you know, one, one part of that is, is this idea of, you know, it started from this sort of negative frame. You know, I can't get my kid to get off of YouTube. And one of the questions that I often ask when I hear that is to do what? Mm-hmm. And often the, the response, I don't know, just not YouTube. Like, okay, well, if that's the case, you don't have a very compelling argument for your kid. Exactly. And so so I think that's the first thing is like, what is it that you should be doing instead? So pitch it as a positive. I don't have a problem with YouTube. I mean, unless they're watching something really, really crazy. But, you know, if they're just watching, right, I, I don't have a problem with YouTube. I do worry that you haven't had much time to engage with your family. And we've decided as a family that family time matters. And so, so YouTube isn't my problem, but I do worry that you haven't had much family engagement time. Can we shift to that? Or I worry that you haven't had exercise today. We've talked that exercise matters, so shift to that. And so so it's not about what not to do on YouTube. It's about what other activity could you or or should you be doing. And so that's really an important shift. The other thing, and just to to use this as an example to to bring it out here a little bit, is I have had parents who I've talked to about this. I get to speak to parents around the world, and, and they've said, look, 
I, I, I tried it. It didn't work. And I was like, really? Like, what, what did you, what did you try? Like, well, I, you said that we're, we're over talking about screen time and screen time shouldn't be what we should use to moderate. So instead I'm going to suggest, you know, other ways to know when we're, when we, we've had enough technology. I did it one night. And then the next day, the the same thing was happening. You're watching too much YouTube. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, these are skills that take years to develop, right? And I compare them a lot. I, a lot of what I do in the book is compare what we do in the digital world for teaching our, our kids to the physical world. And there's a lot of similarities that I think we miss. And so one of them that I like to compare is teaching kids to be good, healthy eaters, we are all, we all try to do this. Like my kids, if we didn't ever try to intervene, would eat macaroni and cheese three meals a day, right? But as parents, over time, we slowly interject other foods and vegetables and we can have macaroni and cheese tomorrow. But today for lunch, we're going to have something healthier, right? And we, we sort of do all this stuff. That takes years to do. And we're lucky we have very healthy, good eaters. But, but that didn't happen because one night I tried to say, let's do broccoli instead of macaroni and cheese, right? And so that's one of the things that we have to remember with, with, our, with our families and our classrooms is this is a, this is a culture shift. And so, so these are skills that we have to practice over time. And if you do them consistently over time, you actually see really good, solid, healthy habits being built. But it's not a one-time quick, you know, let's try this one time and now we're done until my kid's 18, right? Like these are skills we have to continually be reinforcing and building and growing together as a family or as a school community. And I think one of the other things that you brought up in the book that I want to highlight here is that that fluidity and the appropriateness of the of the the child of the day of the environment. So yeah. you know, to use the food analogy, just because we've been eating healthy and we get home and we're really tired and we're going to make mac and cheese tonight, it doesn't mean that we've given up on eating healthy. Right? <laughs> it just means that right. that particular day there was a reason for that. Or if the kid's sick at home. You know, like maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for them to to rest on the couch and watch something that isn't particularly stimulating, right? And then yep. the next day, you you know, when they're feeling better, you go back to the normal routine or look at what the next day brings and adjust accordingly. Yeah, that context really matters. And it, and again, it it works with eating too. As as you mentioned, there are times when we're in a hurry and we're going to stop and we're going to you know go to Wendy's. Like, okay, that's great, but that does not mean that we now eat Wendy's every day, right? And same <laughs> thing with you. You mentioned you know kids sick at home, you know what? Sometimes we're on a long car ride, right? It's a long, boring car ride. And you know what? Just watch something on, just watch some videos, just play some games, just help you get through that. It's okay, right? That is not okay if it's a day after school and there's a big project due the next day and, and that would be a very inappropriate use of that technology. And so I think what I think what happens is sometimes parents, we all do this, want to create these hard, fast rules, right? Two hours of screen time a night or, or 10 minutes of screen time a night or whatever it is, right? There's this sort of, sort of limit. And, and, the, and the thing is that that is very dependent on what's happened in the kids life that day? What are the other activities they participated in? What do they have do the next day? Is that appropriate? Is it? And, and what is happening during that time, right? There are some activities where five minutes is too much, right? And there are some digital activities where five hours is probably appropriate. If I'm, if I'm reading a book or I'm using a, an app to connect with a friend or, or, or learning a new language or making a video, I mean, there's on and on. So, so, so we have to just recognize that these, it's not a, it's not a hard, fast rule. And that we actually really teach the wrong lesson when we teach a hard, fast rule, especially about screen time. And, and I talk about this in the book. If we say, you know, you get an hour a day, well, that teaches kids that all activities on my device are of the same value. 
right? Because in our day, whether I'm, what I'm, you know, again, let's go back to food. Let's say that we treated food like this and said, we well, we have we have food time for an hour a day. From six to seven at night is food time. And, and you could eat Twinkies for the hour or you could eat a healthy meal. Doesn't matter. As long as you stop at seven, you know, seven o'clock when food time is over, all good. And also, by the way, because we're doing food time, you should cram as much food as you possibly can into your mouth right until seven o'clock, right? No, like that's ridiculous. We want kids to stop eating when they're full. Same with, with our, our technology use. It's not the clock that should tell them they're done. They need to, over time, with guidance and support, recognize when they're full, when they've had enough of a digital activity and when they need to move on. And that may be long before uh, a timer goes off if we were using a clock as the as the moderating. So much to so much I want to talk about that I can't because I want to control our time. I do want to and this is probably, and you'll have to- Are you to, applying screen time to our I am applying. No, <laughs> I know, I know. Well, and I'm hoping I can explain what I'm about to, I'm going to do one of these weird connection things and Sean's going to have to explain it because he could speak for me sometimes better. So yesterday, based on the fact that sometimes we have teachers that think that Sean and I are the only ones who should be teaching tech skills and everything, you know, I went and I looked up computer science majors. And again- this you'll have to Sean hopefully you can explain this but I went and looked up what is it what is it for a computer science major and I'm going to kind of compare it with the ISTE standards because they assume my curriculum is to build the kids to go into computer science which it's not 100% not saying that's what my curriculum is but as a computer science major in college they're studying systems designing solving problems they're learning about languages they're learning about networks they're learning about security management, AI, and critical technology needs. And I started thinking, I'm like, okay, so that's my curriculum. But how is that not everybody else's curriculum? Because students have to constantly leverage technology in science, leverage technology when they go to the library to find a book or not find a book. They need to find about rights and responsibilities. And I guess what I'm kind of my passionate ploy, and Sean, maybe you can add to this, is like, it's not just a computer science thing. Like what you're doing with your book is is so powerful and it's something that we all have to dive into. So can you summarize maybe what my question is? <laughs> I guess I guess the question is, as you've gone around and you've talked with teachers, you've talked yeah. with educators, are there particular examples that you've seen that you can share where there is that that multidisciplinary approach to integrating technology into education where mm -hmm. the the teachers are both collaborating together or they're using technology in in delightful and unexpected ways to engage in, in engender better learning i guess is the yeah. the best way to put it you know one of podcast. the things that, <laughs> what one of the things that i really try to emphasize in the book is this idea that digital citizenship is a team sport and that it, it needs to be, you know, the participants are teachers of all subjects, parents, community leaders. We, we, we got to all be in on this, right? In, in the companies that provide the tools and apps that we use, they're part of this too. Higher education needs to be, we, this is an all in sort of thing because this isn't just about some niche skill that you need for a particular job. This is about the skills to maintain our democracy. Right. Like literally our democracy is at stake if as it transitions into the digital world, we forget to teach the skills that are required to have a functioning civil society. And so we got to all be in on this and we're all going to have different parts that we talk about and different areas that we focus on. And that's OK. That's great. That's that's exactly what we want. 
But we can't think that we can kind of just delegate teaching kids to be good citizens, digital citizens to a, you know, our, a CS teacher or their tech teacher or any, any particular teacher. It has to be all of us thinking very thoughtfully about what are the skills that we need to have a functioning society, a healthy, kind, collaborative society, the type of world we want to live in, in a virtual space. And, and we have that moment. We have the, the time to have that conversation. But, but there will be a point where, where, we, where it will be too late. And we will have created a, a virtual world that is so dysfunctional that it's a place that none of us want to live and it'll be too late to then back out of it. And so now is the time. This is the moment for us all to come together and identify and talk about what type of people do we want to be in virtual spaces and practice that with our kids and talk to them about that and involve them. They will shock you with the thoughtfulness of their answers when you ask them, what type of digital human do you want to be? What should our family culture be? What type of things do we want to be? Be known for in our digital presence as a family or as a classroom community in a virtual world. Listen to what they say. They are, they're very thoughtful. And I think if we can have those conversations, we're teeing ourselves up to have a, a really exciting future world. And if we don't, you know, we're really in trouble. And I think the, the other thing that I like about that too, is that, you know, education and our children and our families are a great rallying point for this conversation, right? It's a place that we can all agree that we need to focus our attentions and our energies. And our primary focus can be helping that next generation mm -hmm. um, become better equipped, become empowered to shape that world that they want to live in and that we will also inhabit with them. But the, the secondary purpose of that is that along the way, we all benefit because it's really hard to say to your children, I want you to behave this way online. I want you to be kind and I want you to be thoughtful and I want you to be respectful of others. And then after they go to bed, go get online and be angry at other people, right? Like if we are, if we are telling this to our children, we want to also role model that behavior and it makes us all better participants yeah. in that digital world for having this focus and having this yeah. goal. So, you know, that, that we all win, we all benefit from making this our, our focus in the world. That, that yeah, and Sean, that's great. And actually, that may be a, a nice place to end uh, on that note because I wrote this book and I'm clear about it. My expertise is in working with young people on how to use effective technology. But as, as I written it and as I read it myself, I'm like, you know, this is a real, there are some really good helpful lessons in there for the older people in, in, in these kids' lives as well. And so, yes, we could certainly take a lot of the lessons that I share in there and reflect them back on ourselves and maybe maybe ask how we're doing and, 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 and perhaps for, as we think about our goals for 2022, notch it up a level in terms of what type of people we want to be in virtual spaces as well. Exactly. 100%. Exactly. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us. This is a wonderful conversation and, and an important one too. This is, this is about our future. It's about the kind of world that we want to live in, both digital and physical. And, and so thank you for helping us discuss this, bring some thoughts to our, us and our audience. We're going to post links to the book on Amazon and to any place else you'd like to direct us, but it is a wonderful read. It is very digestible. It's something that you can you can look at with that's full of practical examples and ideas and thoughts and questions. So highly recommended for teachers, for parents, for people who are just interested in being better better citizens of the world. Is there anything uh, else that we should be highlighting? Uh, we have ISTE Live coming up. Anything else that you're working on that you'd like to share with our audience? 
oh, there's all kinds of things that we're working on that, that we'd love to share. No, I, I would just say, first of all, thank you. Thanks very much for having me here and, and, and helping to make this conversation happen. I appreciate that. And I will, I'll also share a link with you for people that want to get the book from local independent bookstores. So certainly you can get it on Amazon, but I also like to share uh, that because it's being uh, carried in many bookstores and I love to support local bookstores when we can. And, and I would say for, for other things, you know, just keep it, keep a watch out. We're doing some, we're going to be announcing some new things at ISTE Soon which are pretty exciting, including a completely overhauled uh, tool to help choose effective apps uh, and websites for learning. Sort of the consumer reports of, of ed tech, if you will. We've been had, had requests for that for a long time, and we're going to release that. It will be called the uh, EdSurge Product Index, and we're, we're really excited. It'll happen out under, under our EdSurge brand. And so, so be watching for that. And, and otherwise, I hope to see many of you in, in June with us in, in New Orleans. It's, it's an exciting time to get back together and to and to share what we haven't been able to share in in several years so looking forward to seeing both of you and, and many of your listeners there as well excellent excellent all right well so for teaching wait 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 oh, we got to plug a couple okay. real quick um just plugging because if we don't our boss will definitely get mad at us going global integrating innovation technology and social entrepreneurship to improve our world is the innovate innovation institute that we're hosting here at pinecrest it is virtual April 24, 25th, and 26th. And she, I, you know, because we love it, we, we learn a lot. We have some great um, speakers. And Sean and I are keynoting this year, so it should be interesting. Yeah, we're also making LEDs light up. We're coding them. Le- we're, we're knitting them. It's going to be great. Yeah. So excellent. Awesome. And yeah, now we can go. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for listening, Richard. Once again, thank you for joining us. It was a pleasure. Hopefully, we can do this again soon. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing off.